Um, Mary, fantastic talk. Uh, as a general neurologist, it was just great to hear about sort of kind of cutting edge uh, emerging treatments in uh, inherited neuropathies. And uh, it is such a complicated area. I mean, you alluded to this a little bit, you know, there's over 85 CMT genes have been identified since 1991. Do you want to just give a flavour of some of the things that you things you talked about and um, even some of the trials and things that you mentioned in the sure so oh, thank you very much so basically I think there's been a huge identification of new genes most of it in the last four or five years because of next generation sequencing so being able to do it find genes much more easily and that's raised a couple of questions and a couple of problems so one we find all these variants and we don't know if they're the cause of the disease so Clinicians have become more important again than they used to be. They were already important, but it's like the post-genetic era, the clinicians have to look at the patients and see, does it fit and is it plausible that this gene is causing the disease? And then, of course, the development of therapies. Now, CMT1 is more common, but most people with it have the common type of CMT due to the chromosome 17 duplication, the first gene to be found. And yet, because it's lifelong, in most people, moderately disabling, but not severely, you really have to develop therapies with the side effects of Smarties to justify giving them and not really expensive. So that's a particular problem with that. With some of the rarer ones, although they're much more disabling and you could justify putting huge money in to find really rare therapies and treating them, one of the problems for those is the diseases are individually rare. So I think there's two approaches. One, we look at individual genes, look at the pathogenesis and then try to define therapies. And one of the things we talked about today was a rare form of neuropathy called hereditary sensory neuropathy which has been found to be due to a toxic project of an enzyme serum palmitase transferase that may be treatable with serine. And then the second way is to try to look at common mechanisms like disorders of axonal transport or protein aggregation and develop therapies that will be applicable to common mechanisms with multiple underlying genetic causes and perhaps also overlapping with central nervous system diseases and acquired neuropathies such as chemotherapy-induced neuropathies. It's interesting, even if you just look at the, the condition you mentioned about HSN1, which is you know exceedingly rare, you mentioned you know only 100 200 patients uh, in the world. Do you want to just give an idea of just some of the, the challenges there are about doing uh, trials in such an you know, ultra-rare disorder? I mean, it's, it's incredibly challenging. So first of all, the patients are not a homogenous group. If you're in your teens or early 20s, you have a sensory neuropathy. If you look after yourself very well, you may look normal. Mm. If not, you may have amputations mm. due to the complications. But if you're in your 50s or 60s, you may be wheelchair-bound with the motor neuropathy. So first of all, if you're trying to design a measure that will capture change over a year in all patients, that's comparable when there's such ends of the spectrum. Secondly, it is almost impossible to do a double-blind placebo-controlled trial with those numbers. So all you can do, I think, is try to develop very sensitive biomarkers, and we've done that. We feel we haven't published it yet for this disease, but we have for another one, but we've done the trial to show that measuring fat in muscles due to denervation does change over a year, even in these rare diseases. But the challenge is, if you show a drug works by that, it won't get licensed on that alone. So I think, and this is happening with some rare diseases like Duchenne's and spinal muscle atrophy, it's time for really serious conversations with the EMA and FDA about how they allow drugs to be licensed in terms of the type of trials that are done compared to the big diseases. Because they cannot look at patient reported outcome measures 
as a primary outcome measure with these very slowly progressive diseases. They will never be sensitive enough unless the trials last for 10, 20 years, and that's never going to happen. And is, there, is there any movement on, on that? Because, uh, I mean, you should... Some, some very interesting data on, on uh, MRI, you know, fat content and things. Is, is there any movement from um, the regulators on this? Yeah, so we're part of, um, we have a large international consortium, which is the Inherited Neuropathy Consortium, which is funded by the NIH. And with through that, we're already talking to the FDA and the EMA about potentially allowing MRI to be used. And in the recent Duchenne's trial, the FDA say it has to be used as one of the outcome measures. So I think that's one thing that's quite interesting that they're beginning to say it might be something that can be changed. And with the MRI work, we're now, we've done it in CMT1A and HSN, and we're now moving it out, or looking for money, I should say, to multiple other forms of genetic diseases and into children. Because I have no doubt with these neuropathies that if you're going to treat them, you have to treat them very early in life to try to prevent the problem. Once the muscle is full of fat, once you've denervation, that's it. There's nothing you can do to treat it. Yeah. And obviously that was, you know, ultra rare uh, problem. On the other hand, you also talked about other kind of common mechanisms, and I suppose um, let's just think about some of the axonopathies. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that? And the, the analogy I thought was quite interesting was, you know, we treat hypertension, which has many causes. Well, so, so basically, I, I mean, you know, you're right. I think common mechanisms are all important. So you go to your GP with hypertension, you get a blood pressure drug. And even though there's multiple different causes, you still treat the hypertension. So my ideal drug is a drug that would treat axonopathies, be they in the central nervous system or the peripheral nervous system. So this drug would treat someone with CMT, Charcot-Marie Tooth Disease. It would be given to someone that was about to have chemotherapy that causes neuropathy to prevent the neuropathy. And you could give it for diabetes. So any disturbance of axon, you'd have a drug that treats nerves. Now clearly, that's slightly simplistic. It was always seen as being simplistic. People tried things like nerve growth factors, but they were too toxic with this idea in mind. But I think it becomes less simplistic if you can really define common mechanisms. And I think drugs that modulate mechanisms that are applicable across central peripheral nervous system diseases, genetic and acquired, are a very effective way of trying to move things forward. Uh, you also talked, and I'm curious to explore that a little bit more, because. Uh that original family from Ireland and the um, TTR amyloid story. Do you, do you want to tell us a bit about yeah, no, that? That was into something I got interested in. So in, in 1987, a group of families were described from northwest Donegal with amyloid. And it was fun at the time because people speculated the amyloid was due to a, a mutation in a gene called transthyrethin. And transthyrethin, the protein, was found in the amyloid. And at that stage, that disease was thought to be all from Portugal because there was mutation and the Spanish Armada sank off the west coast of Ireland in the 17th century so it was speculated that they may have left a few genes by because everyone that turns up from the west coast of Ireland with curly dark hair is thought to have a Spanish gene. So there was a good rationale for that but of course in 91 it was found to be a different mutation. This mutation is unique to northwest Ireland but it's been found in the Appalachian region of the states, it's been found in Australia and it's the commonest cause of this disease in England and most patients left Ireland in 1845 at the time of the famine. So basically the gene arose before that and because Irish families are big and move a lot, it spread all over the world. So for me, I got involved in research because of this disease and I probably got my job in Ireland, in, in London, because I spoke Irish. They needed someone that would go back and collect the families from Northwest Ireland. So I'm sure the only reason I'm here is because I spoke Irish. <laughs> Nice story, and I was thinking about it because I can think of a patient uh, so many years ago who had a liver transplant that didn't do well, uh, which is, I think, one of the challenges with these kind of long-term conditions. Um, but you also mentioned about some of the potential drug treatments, uh, um, tetramostab stabilizers and things. Yeah. So. There's a couple of now drug stabilizers, and these stabilize 
the tetrameric stable structure of transthyroidine to prevent it dissociating to the monomer that causes the amyloid. And there's two drugs, Diflunazole, which is an old-fashioned non-steroidal, which is licensed now. Um, but it's a pretty dirty drug. It's an old-fashioned non-steroidal. It's not great for your kidneys, not great if you're on warfarin, which a lot of these patients are for their heart. And a new drug called Tefamidus, which isn't licensed in the UK, but is in Europe and isn't in the US, because the trial wasn't positive, but was underpowered. But it does look like this drug works if you give it early in patients. So I think these are two options which are interesting. And then of course the newer option is antisense treatment. That means you basically knock out the translation of the gene in the liver where 85% of the protein is produced. So if you knock out the production of the protein, it should treat the disease. And we know it does surgically if you do a liver transplant. So there's a proof of principle already surgically that it will work. And the phase three trials are going on at the moment. Okay, that's fascinating. and. Also, another thing I was just thinking about the whole, um, obviously, CMT1A, communist hereditary uh, neuropathy, and this balance between um, uh, loss of function and gain of function. Um, I was curious to know, uh, you know, we've known so, for such a long period about this gene, are there any drugs that might um, affect that? Or, in fact, there was that paper you mentioned about the uh, parents, uh, one of it. Do you want to mention about that? Yeah, so basically, we've known for a long time that you've three copies of the gene you get CMT1A and that gene is the gene for PMP22, peripheral myelin protein 22 and if you've one copy of hereditary neuropathy you're liable to pressure palsy and there's good preclinical and animal studies that show it is a dosage effect too much or too little of the nerve is critical because it exists in a very precise stoichiometric relationship in the peripheral myelin even though it only accounts for about 5% of the myelin. So basically there's this family published this year where one parent had CMT1A, that is three copies of the gene. The other parent had HMPP, that is one copy of the gene. And one of their children inherited the allele from one parent with two copies of the gene and from the other parent with zero copies of the gene. So they basically, they had two copies, but they all came from one parent and the person is completely normal. So it's absolute proof in a patient that this disease is due to a dosage effect. I guess I just want to thank you very much for uh, such an eloquent talk and actually you know that case just shows the importance of uh, even with cutting edge science you still need people really clinically assessing patients properly. Thank I think you very that's much. completely true. Thank you. Okay.